I'm going to say good morning again to all of you who are here and also to those of you who are online. Uh, if you had to wait a little bit uh, between the end of the worship and now, apologies, but we released the children to Kids Rock. And yes, we have Kids Rock back up again for ages, three to eight. Notice how we got that, people in the house. And, uh, and also for um, preteens, Ali's here today uh, with the preteens upstairs. We've got things all cleaned up, sanitized, and we believe going really well. And we just spent also some time in prayer this morning for a number of people, but also fires in our province. So we ask you online as well to pray with us and uh, yeah, keep the men and women who are fighting these fires in your prayers throughout this week. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, whether it's a Luddite version, that's what I call them, the printed versions, those, those are awesome, you know, they still exist, and they're good because you can make notes, or something on your, your phone or a tablet, open to Matthew chapter 18. We are going to be primarily in that chapter this morning. Um, and although we're going to be moving through it and uh, bits and bites along the way, uh, we are continuing this morning in a series, as you see on the screen on the wall here, called Knowing Jesus. Uh, both Rudy and I have been preaching through this for a number of weeks now. I believe we're in week five today. The purpose of this series was from the things that we've been going through as a church, we wanted to spend more time uh, looking at the texts of Scripture where Jesus is a part of the story. So primarily in the Gospels, not just his words when he is speaking, but his actions. And what we wanted to do as much as possible is do what he asks us to do, which is to hear him. And in order to do that, I've been asking you each week to use your imagination and just as we're speaking, as we're reading, try to put yourself back into the time, almost as if you're watching the series The Chosen, right? And imagine Jesus. Just try to imagine the context and the situation, the story, so that you, 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 you hear him, you see him, you, you see the men and women around him who are hearing him preach and teach. It's an important exercise because this will help us, I believe, know Jesus more deeply. And why do we want to know Jesus more deeply? Well, <laughs> he has sent his spirit to be with us, his spirit to be with us, and the purpose of the Christian life after you've been born again, saved by Jesus' work on the cross on your behalf and for you, is a life of transformation. Amen? That's what we hope for. And it's called our sanctification. It's how we grow in our faith. And how do we do that? Well, we look to Christ. We look to his word. And he models it for us. So to get us started today in this, this message that God's put on my heart, I want to ask you a relatively simple question. If there was one commandment, one commandment, you only get to pick one, that Jesus said was the most important commandment of all in the Gospels, and it literally came out as, what would that be? Maybe, um, what would it be? Like, uh, go to church on Sunday? It's, it's a, he didn't actually command that, but in Hebrews, Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews says you should not forsake the gathering of the saints. Um, what, what about you, that you should uh, feed the poor? It's a commandment. It's my most important commandment, you should feed the poor. No, that wasn't it, actually, although that would be a good thing, and he does suggest and encourage us to feed and care for the poor, right? So what would be that most important thing? I think a few of you have already picked them on it, and it's this. The, the, the main commandment that Jesus has for us is that we love one another. If you look at John chapter 15, it'll be on screen for you. These are the words of Jesus. If you keep my commandments plural, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What kind of a life does Jesus want us to have? A joy-filled life. A joy-filled life. Not a fearful life, but a joy-filled life. And then look at what he says. This is my commandment, singular, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Possibly one of my favorite verses in the scripture. So this is easy, right? This is easy. What a commandment. Come on. You're all nailing this one, right? Everyone getting an A plus and loving one another like perfectly? Like, like, like the way Jesus loves us? No? No? A few struggles out there? I think so, right? I mean, his love for us is what? Sacrificial, unconditional, and perfect. And of course, we love each other exactly the same way, don't we? <laughs> no. So what's the problem? Why are we consistently not hitting the mark? What do you think the problem might be? Well, the bottom line is, is that it's really hard. And the reality is, I'm speaking for myself as well as I think most of you, we fail miserably often. The truth is, sadly, we lie to one another. It's not very loving. We don't always tell the truth to one another. We complain about one another to one another. Right? We do that. Uh, our relationships struggle to the point where even as Christians, we give up on one another. Some relationships, in fact, actually amongst Christians end. It's not supposed to be that way. In so many ways, we adopt the world's attitude towards love, which is actually very conditional. You offend me. You, you don't support me the way that I, I, I would hope you would. Um, and therefore, in my opinion, you're not as loving to me as you should be. And this goes on for some time. It's like, okay, listen, we're done. This relationship is over. Again, it's not the way it is supposed to be, is it? I remember about eight or nine years ago, there was a, a, a young woman in our church, and trust me, none, none of you will know who this is. We've been a small church for so many years, sometimes he's talking about so-and-so, or me. No, no, I'm not. I, I actually don't believe they're in Squamish anymore. But anyway, they started dating a guy, this gal started dating a guy at the Rock Church. And for a while there, it was looking good, you know, like they were dating, they were going for dinners, they were, you know... Nothing wrong, I don't think, was going on or whatever. But anyway, what ended up happening is he broke up with her. It was horrible. Her heart was broken. Well, actually, she came to me one point. She goes, well, listen, Pastor, one of us needs to find another church. <laughs> okay, I thought that was funny. Because at the time, it was like, I looked at her, I went, are, are you serious? And, and actually, she was. It's kind of immature when you think about it, right? But... In the world, that's what happens. People break up, and they don't remain friends with each other. Anyway, they remained friends and stayed in the Rock Church until I think both of them eventually moved away. So listen, I, I truly believe with all my heart that Jesus not only commands us to love one another as his primary command to the church, to people who call themselves disciples and Christians, but he models it for us. And he shows us how we can actually love one another better. Your sermon title for today is Three Ways to Love One Another Better. Amen? You're super excited, eh? So number one point is going to be think more highly 
of one another. Number two will be call one another to repentance. That'll be fun. Thirdly, forgive one another again. You'll note that? So point number one, think more highly of one another. Chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 1, begins with this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This question was asked of Jesus a couple of times. So I was thinking about this, and a memory from my childhood came to me. Uh, I remember uh, going to grade school in Toronto. It didn't matter whether it was fall, winter, or spring. Uh, I had my knapsack on my back with my lunch pail in there and my books, of course. But in my right hand, almost every day was my hockey stick. And, and, and the reason for that was is because, first of all, you grew up in Toronto, like the Toronto Maple Leafs and Hockey Night in Canada is your church, right? I mean, I was raised Catholic, and actually they were okay with hockey being your church on certain days. But anyway, we would take our sticks there because during recess in the morning and the afternoon, and, and oftentimes after school, we would play ball hockey. It was awesome. It was really great. But there's a, there's a certain rule, a schoolyard ball, ball hockey selection rule I want to tell you about. And it kind of works like this. Two of the lads are, are chosen to be captains. Usually they're the better players, uh, and so they'll be the captains of one of the teams, and then they start, you know, the rest of us all line up. I would be a captain once in a while, by the way. I just want to let you know that. But they'd, otherwise, they'd line us up against the wall, and then they would start picking alternately, right? And so one kid would get picked, and one boy would get picked. And on. But here's what would happen. As the picking went along, and if you were still against the wall, you'd be sitting there in your mind anyway going, please pick me. <laughs> please don't let me be last again. Please pick me. It was kind of cruel, right? But, but it was the schoolyard rules, and it actually works. The teams ended up actually being quite competitive. So it was, was awesome. So I, I imagine that when I read this text, because as I think of these men who are following Jesus, let's remember, on this particular day, they're, they're saying to them, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's going to be Jesus on your A-team? They want to know. Of course they do. Just the chapter before, in chapter 17, it was an interesting episode where Jesus picked three men, Peter, James, and John, remember that? Took them up the mountain for the transfiguration, and they got to see, you know, Elijah and Moses and, and Jesus, and it was like remarkable. And then on the way down the mountain, Jesus said to them, now listen, do not tell anyone what you saw here today, at least not for now. So you can imagine what happened. The guys come down the hill. The other disciples are all running up to them. The 12 and a few of the other disciples are going, hey, 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 whoa, that was amazing. Like we saw clouds, we saw lightning. What was going on up there? And you can imagine the other three guys going, sorry, can't tell you. I think the spirit of competition might have happened at that point in time. That would have definitely got some of the other guys wondering who's the greatest, and asking why they weren't picked for the A-team. There was this mindset that, you know, you wanted to be closest to the leader so you could be a co-leader so that you would get some benefit for being on the A-team. And so it was pretty natural that they would do that. And then I love Jesus' response. It's, it's like, he, I, I got I to think, and again, I imagine Jesus all the time, and I'm thinking he's probably just, <laughs> guys, like, ah, oh, I, lo I love you. But anyway, so you see what he does? In the very next verse, he says, and calling to him, he put in the midst of them uh, and said, a child, pardon me, he put in the midst of them and said, here's a little illustration for you, boys. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So again, you know, imagine the picture. Jesus sits down, calls a young child, a boy or a girl, we don't know, to him and literally puts the child on his lap and says, gentlemen, I have to give you a bit of a lesson. I have to give you a lesson. So they're sitting there looking at this, and what Jesus says, he says, guys, listen, there's an important word there. Unless you turn, that word in the Greek is the same word that's used for repent. In other words, unless you guys get your heads screwed on correctly and get things figured out and understand what the kingdom is all about, you're potentially yourselves not going to make it, let alone be on the A-team. So he's telling them they actually have to have a change of mind about these things. So what exactly is going on here? Well, they are all, just by asking the question, I think, thinking and hoping more highly of themselves than others, right? They want to be picked over other people. They want it to be a ruling system like they've seen in the Jewish faith. They want it to be like what they see in the culture, where there are people who are in charge, and those people in charge are more important, and they therefore get more things. And so it's not like they're, saying, they're actually sitting there going, you know, Jesus, we, we understand, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, I think it would be a good idea for you to not pick me, but maybe little Andrew over there is a pretty quiet guy, but he would probably be really good for your A-team. We don't see that. We don't see that happening. No, it's a competition. And most of them are saying, pick me over someone else. It's not very loving, is it? It's the way of the world, but it's not the way of the kingdom. So what we see here is one of the beautiful things actually about the gospel of the kingdom. And that is this, that the way up in the kingdom is down, right? The the way up is down. It's the servant, the one who humbles himself, who will be the greatest. The one who, in fact, goes low and has the heart of a servant is the one who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And, of course, all we have to do is look at the life of Jesus to see that modeled perfectly, all the time, sacrificially, unto death. So 40 times in the New Testament, we hear the words one another. 40 times in the New Testament. In almost every case, it's related to Christians loving one another. Almost every case. Not not all, but most. Jesus is teaching his disciples here, you and I by extension, that to love one another better, we need to be more high, think more highly, I should say, of each other. We should actually be wanting to lift one another up rather than be over others. Or think more highly of ourselves, which of course we shouldn't. And of course, it doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves, but as Tim Keller likes to say, that we think of ourselves less often, right? So that's the premise. Now, what happens here is Jesus goes on in the next 10 verses to warn those that are watching this story and listening to him about this going low and being childlike. And, and not wanting to overrule other people, he continues to talk and he begins to warn people about temptation to sin. 
And it's pretty grievous. At one point, he, he warns them that it would be better if you had, if you, if you cause, and he speaks, looks at the child when he says this, one of these little ones, and essentially we assume he's speaking about baby Christians, if you cause one of my children to sin, it would be better for you to have a large rock, a millstone, hung around your neck and be thrown into the ocean. This, by the way, is the loving Jesus speaking here. That's his warning to those who are watching and are, have or are causing little ones to sin. And he continues to warn everyone who tempts others to sin, including those in the world. In other words, those who are not his children to cause his children to sin, he says, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. So the key to these passages is this. Causing temptations that lead to sin are one thing, but it is the result that Jesus is most concerned about. And it is this. Every sin against one another is a sin against God, first and foremost, right? It is. It's also this. Unrepentant and unforgiven sin leads to severing of our love relationships with one another. And to that point, Jesus now provides the remedy that is our second way to love one another better. You ready for this? So number two, call one another to repentance. Begins in verse 15. Read with me. I'll read the text first, and then later the the verses will be on screen. Three verses. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him, his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the whole church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, you know, this is, this is not a passage that I've heard preached in the church very often. It's a, it's a passage that, quite frankly, is often avoided, right? It, it is. And so why, you ask? Well, well, because often it's actually given the title, and even in some Bible translations, it's given the title above the passage, church discipline. We all love that word, don't we? Everybody loves discipline, don't we? And so it's kind of avoided. And it's actually, I think sometimes it's put out there to be, it's this thing that Christian leaders do uh, that, that, you know, have to do at certain times with people who have committed really egregious sins. And so it's a church discipline issue that only pastors and elders, leaders in the church need to know about the rest of us. But is that true? Let's read the text again, because I don't think that's true. I mean, certainly church leaders might need to get involved at some point, and they do, for sure. But look at Jesus' words at the beginning here. He says, if your brother, right, sins against you, this is a teaching for you, for me. It's a teaching for all of us. And it it, it is the three steps that Jesus gives to all of us. It's actually three, but the third one is a two-parter. To all of us to do when someone has sinned against us. 
These are the steps that Jesus gives to each one of us that are intended to ensure, listen, that the love we have for one another remains unbroken, remains healthy, and remains strong. So let's just walk through the steps one by one and see what it is that you and I are supposed to do individually. Verse 17 again says, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So first and foremost, it's important because <laughs> I've seen this happen and played out sometimes in, in the church, uh, to differentiate between what is legitimately in the Scripture a sin and someone who just hurt my feelings. Okay? That should probably also uh, require a conversation, right? To have healthy relations, maybe some counseling, but it's not a sin. A sin is a different thing. It's an egregious thing. And it's, again, not just a sin to you against you individually. It's actually, since you're a member of the body of Christ in a local church, it's actually a sin by extension against the church because now there's sin in the camp. And, of course, it's a sin against God. So that's the first and foremost thing. Let's just make sure we're actually talking about a real sin. So the first thing that we see in the the instructions from Jesus is this. Don't wait. Like, if a brother or sister has sinned against you, go. Don't let it, I like to use the phrase, Janice hates this, let it fester, right? Because it, you know, oh, I'm so mad at them. You know, oh, and why did they do this? Does anyone else have self-talk as you're driving up the highway? Like, you know, oh. When you do that, what happens? It just gets worse. You build up maybe sin in your own heart towards your brother or sister. So, go to your brother or sister, and look, it says, in private. Not in front of a bunch of other people. <laughs> in private in a private setting, and tell them exactly how you believe they have sinned against you personally. Now, again, you love doing that, don't you? Can I ask an honest question? Don't don't raise your hand. How many of you have done that in the last month? (laughs) Year. Has anyone ever sinned against you? We love doing this. I think no. Maybe you, some of you do, and that's another conversation, and again, maybe counseling. But no, I don't believe most of us like doing this. In fact, I think most of us like to avoid it. And why? Well, many of us don't like conflict, do we? We don't like conflict. I hear that all the time. I just don't like conflict. I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in a, sitting, a situation where there's conflict. It gets me all stressed out. I understand. But Jesus says, go to them. Be honest. And if he or she listens meaning hears you and is sorry and tells you so, great, your relationship is restored. Hugs post-pandemic probably happen, right? Yeah, they do. It's awesome. Both parties feel actually loved through the process. You, by doing what you should do, calling your brother or sister to repent, you've shown them that you love them and that you want this relationship to continue. And frankly, to grow. Jesus goes on because he knows. And he says in verse 16, but if he or she does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
So sometimes, sadly, it's not going to go the way we had hoped, right? We go in thinking, this is going to be simple. They, they know they've sinned. I'm going to tell them, and they're going to be like, I know. That was horrible. I'm sorry. But it doesn't always work out that way. People don't like always being confronted either, do they? May not agree with your charge either that they've actually committed a sin, and they re- may reject you and the charge. And so now what do you do? Well, Jesus says, don't give up. <laughs> if you're certain this is a problem that needs to be resolved, don't give up, don't quit. And, and so what he says is, he recommends that you, you talk to two or three other people and, and you invite them to come and, and be with you as you bring this challenge to your brother or sister. A couple of caveats I would suggest to you. First, you don't actually want to share what the sin is with these people you're inviting before you go. Do you know why? Well, we'll be talking about that sin in a few minutes. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Because then they may all of a sudden be like, well, yeah, I'm on your side. That's a tough caveat, I understand. But think about it and pray about that. Secondly, it's probably a good idea to invite someone, one or two people, one particularly, to come with you who you know loves this other person maybe more than you do, And this other person knows that and feels comforted by having them there. So there's a very subtle point to the step that we must see. This is very subtle and people miss this. I've missed it, for sure. Note the words that every charge be established. You see, this step is ingenious. I mean, Jesus is the one giving us the step. Of course it's ingenious. It's perfect. And so what he's, what he's giving us in this step is a situation where now I feel someone has sinned against me. I go to one or two of you and say, hey, come with me to speak to so-and-so. And uh, yeah, I, 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 look, I, I feel they've committed a sin against me. I don't want to, I'll use that word, gossip to you about what it is. Um, so I'd like you to come with me and listen with me. And, and now all of a sudden you're realizing something. Hold on. <laughs> These people are going to be checking out my charges. And they're going to be seeing the other person's response in that situation. And you know what could eventually happen in that kind of a conversation? The people who came to be your witness might bear witness that, hang on a second here, I don't think, Glenn, it's exactly the way you thought it was. Problem solved. Hugs ensue. Right? This is what should happen. It's, a, it's an, inc- an incredibly wonderful step. It's a step. Then Jesus goes on to the next step with two parts. If he or she refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to le- listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So as I said, there's actually two steps here. The first is bringing the charges to the attention of the whole church family so that others in the church can also now start showing the brother or sister who is in sin how much they love them. How? By calling them to repent. Come on. This is not right. You've got to repent. You've got to, you've got to turn from what you're doing. You need to tell so-and-so you're sorry. We need, to, we, need, we need to make up here. And that's why it's done. But again, man, I've got to be honest with you. We don't like that church, do we? 
Certainly at this point, elders may likely be involved. But still remember this, please. We are the church. It's the responsibility of all of us to be part of that. And that's what Jesus is, why he's doing this. He wants there to be unity. There wants to be not an us versus them, people taking sides, but we're all in on this decision. And it's a oneness that he's trying to ascertain here. The final step, believe me when I say this, is not what any church leader or member ever wants to see happen. But again... If we are to listen to Jesus, it must be carried out, if required. And it's brutal. I've been part of it. It's very hard. It's very hard. Jesus literally says here, put them out of the church. When Jesus says, let them be as Gentiles and tax collectors, in that day and age, they would have understood that simply to mean this. Gentiles are, of course, outside of the family of faith. Right? So treat them like that. They're being treated like people who are, of course, outside of the faith because they're Gentiles. They don't believe in Yahweh. They don't believe in Jesus. But the tax collector part is most of the tax collectors in that day were Jews who were now literally betraying their own people by working for the Romans. And so he's saying, yeah, treat them like people who've decided to be outside of the faith as well. This is hard. And so my question for you is, have you ever seen it done? Have there ever been situations where you know it should have been done, but it wasn't? I know this is hard, guys. It's the text. It's Jesus. It's what he's teaching us. And there's a purpose to it. And the purpose is always, always, always in this. It's not to put people out of the church to purify the church, although some people think that's a good idea. That's not it. The purpose is repentance and restoration of the love that we are supposed to have for one another. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth about a man whose sin is very serious. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. I'm not going to mention it. You can read for yourselves. It's a pretty egregious sin. Let's put it that way. It's, it's sexual immorality on a very egregious level. He's calling the church, however, out for their own sin in the situation. And what's their sin in the situation in the church in Corinth? They're not doing anything about this guy. They're tolerating his sin in the camp and in the church. And so Paul literally applies Matthew 18 to this situation. In 1 Corinthians 5, 2, he says to the church in Corinth, are you arrogant? Gotta love Paul. Ought you not rather to mourn over your, your tolerance of sin? Let him who has done this be removed from you. And then in verse 11, after more accusations of them, he says this, But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Ever? Gotten to that point? So again, why? Why would Jesus go this far? Why Why would Paul encourage people to go this far? Only one reason. And the reason is to show them you love them that much that you're going to discipline to that, 
them to that level that they will be driven to repentance and restoration. So back in the text in Matthew, you may be thinking it's because none of us like conflict that we avoid following the steps that Jesus so simply lays out. But I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true. I'm going to suggest to you <laughs> I'm going to suggest to you that sin is exactly what the enemy of our souls, the enemy of the church wants. The enemy of the love that we have for one another wants. And what he doesn't want for us is to confront these things. He doesn't want us to repent of these things and actually grow, not only in our faith, but in our love for one another. He doesn't want that, church. He wants it broken. He wants sin to divide us, to destroy the good deposit that we have in the church. So what do we often do instead? Instead of following these three hard but simple steps that Jesus gives to us. What do we do instead? Well, (laughs) we sin, actually, most of us. I've done it. By committing a little tiny sin that is embedded in a list of sins that Paul lays out in Romans 1, right there beside the biggie sin in Romans 1 that all of you know what that sin is. I don't need to mention it, but it's a little sin that's right in there It's a tiny sin. It's listed there. Anyone know what it is? I gave it away earlier. It's gossip. Here's how it goes. Someone comes to you and says, someone who may have been sinned against, in their opinion, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? It's usually about what they've done either to someone else or to the person sharing with you. It can often involve your friend being quite grieved uh, if it's something that has happened to them personally. It could even be about a sin that was committed against them. And of course, if that's true, well, now your feelings are your concern for your friend, right? This would, of course, cause you to be concerned. Either way, at that point, whether or not a sin has been committed against them, they are now in sin, They're in the sin of gossip because they they have refused to follow what Jesus has given them as the way to deal with a sin that's been committed against them. And so now here's the problem and why this becomes so much worse. The minute you or I go, no, tell me, we're in sin. We're committing and participating in gossip. So, so if you look at step one that Jesus has given to us, to prevent that from happening, just remember step one that Jesus gave us on how to love one another better. You should stop them right at the moment that they say that to you. I should too. I've been in this place, okay? I'm not picking on anybody here. But you should stop them right there and go, hey, time out. Hold on. Don't tell me, please. You should at that point go, hang on. Have you, have you talked to that person yet? Uh, no, no. Well, okay, then hang on. I don't want to hear it. You go talk to them. Now, there may be some mitigating situations or circumstances. There always are, trust me, where maybe it needs to go to step two right away where you need to offer or someone else needs to offer because they're afraid of or concerned about a conflict with this person. Fair game. But you need to encourage them also at this time to stop gossiping and to stop sinning against their brother or sister. 
It, it's, it's how you love them better, but it's also how you love the rest of the body, including the person, by the way, who may or may not have sinned against them. Remember, every charge needs to be established by witnesses. You all know my favorite preacher, so I'm going to quote him. His name is Tim Keller. He's so wise. He said this about gossip. Gossip is not necessarily spreading untruths. It is this, however. It is revealing information that should be kept confidential. It is giving news about a person intended to lower him or her in the regard of the listener. It's negative information that may or may not be true, designed to make the speaker and the hearer ultimately feel more superior to the object of their gossip. So in every situation like this, friend, may I encourage you, remember the steps that Jesus has given to us. It's amazing in this text, right? Love each other by thinking more highly of the other than ourselves. Love your brother and sister by calling them to repent if they have, in fact, in effect, sinned against you. And then thirdly, as we are going to close today, forgive one another again. <laughs> in verses 21 and 22, Peter comes up to Jesus and said to him, love Peter, I love Peter. He asks, of course, the obvious question at this point, doesn't he? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, again, for those of you, I think you've probably heard this before. The Greek kind of implies not a literal 77. It's like, just again. Again and again and again. If he repents and asks for forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul follows up, by the way, on the letter that he wrote about the man in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you knew this. He follows up about the man referred to in his first letter, whom they had put out of the church and refused to even eat with. Paul had heard about that they'd done what he told them to do, and this man had been put out of the church. It's an amazing story. Well, this time now, he has something else to instruct the church as he writes back to them, and this time, it's because of the fact the man has repented. So guess what? It works. Calling people to repentance and following the steps that Jesus gives to us actually works. But now he's writing to the church and he's going, guys, now you need to forgive this guy. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 2, 6-9. For such a one, speaking of the man who committed this egregious sin, this punishment by the majority is enough. He goes, guys, what, what you did, which is what you should have done, was hard enough on him. But he's repented. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul's going, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. You know what? Sometimes, friends, people commit sins in the church against brothers and sisters that we love very much. And we find it hard to forgive them even though the person who's been sinned against does. We are called by Jesus, by the gospel, to forgive again. So again, back in our text in Matthew, it's again funny to hear Peter, right? I mean, he, he hears Jesus talking. He's going, okay, Jesus, come on, come on. There's got to be a limit, right? 
there's got to be a limit. I mean, how much can, am I supposed to take, right? I mean, there must be a reasonable limit to the number of times someone sins against me again, and I have to forgive them. At some point, it's got to be like seven strikes and you're out, right? Come on, there's got to be a limit. And again, I want you to just imagine Jesus hasn't moved. He's still sitting there with this little child on his lap. And he's going, Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter, you know I love you, right? Peter, I love you. But my answer is, you need to forgive again and again and again and again. And by the way, Peter, just like I'm going to forgive you at least three times in just a few more months, and then again, and then again, and then again. Friends, in the family of God, forgiveness is the key to healthy, loving relationships. My hope for you and us as a church is that we will want to do these things. We will want that too. And we will strive really hard to keep the unity and the love for one another that already exists in our church. But we need to protect it. So I want to ask you to maybe consider asking yourself three questions this week. And I'll leave you with these three questions. I think this would be very healthy for us as a church right now, this summer. Here's the three questions for you to ask yourself this week. Who in my church family or in my relationships have I been looking down upon? Have I been critical about in my heart and my spirit? Go and confess your sin to them and tell them you're sorry. Secondly, who has sinned against me? And instead of going to them, I have gossiped about it. Or I've just let bitterness bear up in my heart. Confess your sin of gossip. That's what you've done. And now go. And if a brother or sister has sinned against you, tell them so. Start with step one that Jesus gives to us. And finally, obviously, who do I need to forgive? Who have I yet to forgive for either a sin committed against me or against someone I love, who is it? Lord, please show me. And as soon as the Spirit speaks to you, go and tell them. You haven't forgiven them yet, but you do today, and now ask them to forgive you. Pray with me, would you?